this sense of duty that I had from where I came from that you look after the people around you, the sense of gratitude that the system at the time seemed to gift me this opportunity to go somewhere to quest to the next place, the next book, the next set of ideas, the next odd person who could revolutionise my worldview. I just want to give that to the next lot. If you, you, you as a unique individual artistic human being, have amazingly complicated things that you want to communicate to the world, you say, right, well, then your pictures that you draw of those amazingly complicated, nuanced thoughts need to be as accurate as possible if you want to communicate those thoughts in the fullness of their detail and nuance to the world. And that's why it's worth knowing where to put your apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's worth knowing where to put a capital letter or whether to have T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R or T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Lee. Uh, hello, Lee. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm all right. This conversation's being recorded in your office. It is. We're drinking uh, pale ale. Oh, I'm always grateful <laughs> when my guests provide me with refreshments. That's a, yep. that's, the, that's a lovely way round. Happy um, to do so. But, I mean, obviously I feel also remiss to have not brought, brought something for you. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? How do I know you? Well, I know you, I suppose, from the scene, if you like that, if you like that word. I always liked scenes. Um, I kind of grew up in a scene. And so from the poetry scene circuit, whatever you'd like to, to call it, I can't recall our first meeting, to be frank with you, because I, I think it was probably... I don't know if I came to you uh, if to a stand-up tragedy or if it was probably in Edinburgh, Yeah, it to might be honest. Have been. I think it might have been in... T- were you there in I 2009? Think, yeah, I think... Yeah, well, I definitely think that the first time I met you, it was one of those things where I hadn't seen you perform. You hadn't really seen me perform. Yeah, yeah. And we were just sort of, like, introduced through mutual friends. Yeah. Like, uh, you're... You, Probably Rich. Right, Richard Tyrone Jones yeah. is a guy who is a poet. Well, used to be a poet. Used to be a poet, used to be a now. promoter. Basically built a lot of what's happening now. I think certainly what happens in Edinburgh... It's right. a lot to do with Richard's legacy. Yeah, no, he was, and he's been very involved with the Free Fringe over yeah. the years as well. He pushed, well so. 2009 was the first sort of year when he was director and that kind of... Yeah. He kind of made that happen and it's grown massively since. Right. But it was his doggedness, I think, initially that kind of made that happen. Right, and I knew you as kind of his mate and I, yes. I often <laughs> you'd turn up at gigs that he was putting on and you'd be one of the people um, and I was sometimes one of those people who were being asked favours by Richard and were having to run yes. around and do yes. stuff. he and, does do that. And, well, yeah, but I mean, you have to ask favours if mm. you want to get things done, but he has the ability to sort of like, I'm not very good at like delegating because I always feel too guilty about giving mm. other people He's jobs. He's extremely good at it. He's fine with but it. But also, I mean, I used to do PA because I know I had to do PAs, so that was usually my job. Right. Was turn up, grub around under the table at the back of the pub, try and find filthy bits of cable. Right. And sling the PA together. Yeah, and so um, one thing and another, like it was a long time before I saw you perform your spoken word mm-hmm. or poetry or however Whatever you wanted to yeah, define yeah. it. I'm less um, picky about the term than a lot of people. Well, are. yeah, and I imagine that's probably because you've come to it from a slightly different direction from a lot of well, performance. Well, I've been at it, I've figured out actually this is my 20th year of spoken word performance. Wow. I think I did my first gig at the Art 33 Arts Centre in Luton in 1996. It was called I Can't Believe It's Not Poetry, uh, which I didn't promote or name, make that very clear. But the guy did, Lawrence, he uh, kind of started 
something. Uh, and then me and a guy called Paul who did that, we went on to do a, a night called Tonsil Tennis in Luton through the late 90s. And we had John Cooper Clark on before, in a, in a period when nobody was fating him. So Paul was a rabid fan, so we kind of rang him up, somehow managed to get contact with him without going through his agent. And we used to put him on for half of what the agent was asking for, and he'd crash on Paul's sofa. And we used to run a whole year's worth of gigs paying everybody off of one night in the year of having John Cooper Clark, because it would cost us 350 quid. Right. But we'd sell out the whole 120 capacity venue at eight, nine quid a ticket. Right. Uh, and even with the venue taking a cut, we'd still make enough money to run sort of with a budget of about £100 for 12 more gigs across the year. No, that's that's interesting. So, that's a, it's an interesting model. Yeah. It's, it's good that you had a kind of person who was big enough, but also into roughness and yeah, sort of well, variety yeah. and like yeah. possibility. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I think is fair to say about John Cooper Clark, from my knowledge of him. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you you knew him personally. Well, no, he knew no Paul better. He knew better. He knew Paul better than me. Right. But I saw I saw him not long ago because he came back to Luton to do a, a much bigger, much more paid local arts council funded festival gig. And obviously, I sort of I still very, pretty well connected with that stuff in Luton now. So, right. hello, John. And he sort <laughs> of remembered. <laughs> he said he remembered. Right. Uh, he certainly. He certainly. And I'm sure he did remember. Remember. Right, but and so you started doing spoken word like in Luton, in Luton, and you still live in Luton. I've been away and come back again. Right, I'm not. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what happened was I ended up moving to London in 2002, and uh, had an awful job in Luton, and was doing not very much. Met somebody who was going to London, and so we went to London. And I found another job, and that's kind of where where I am now. Kind of comes from there. Right, we're in London yeah. now. Yeah, we're not but, in but I met, and also I'm sort of twelve years down the line of a career in in education. Right, if you want to call it a career, I suppose you would call well, it. Well, I think you should call yes, it a career. Yes, I mean, you, you said you're you're, you're vice principal. I'm vice principal of an independent specialist college these days. Yes. Right, and so that's the second question that I ask yeah. everybody: is what do you do now? And I guess that's part of that. That's answer. what I do. That's what I do for money and for a certain amount of of love and satisfaction, because it's I do love educating, working in education, and this is an independent. It's not private in that expensive way but we're self-governing we're not under local authority control we're a charity so we run our own affairs and there's a nimbleness and an agility and a, and a what's the best way of putting it a truthfulness to our motivation that is muddied in uh, public sector uh, education because unnecessarily because people need to be sure that public money's being spent properly right but what happens there is that the ways in which you measure things become more important than the things that you're measuring. Um, and that's the legacy of Ofsted and Targets. You see it in the National Health Service as well. Right. The, 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 the meter becomes more important than the, than the thing that you're metering. Well, no, right. I mean, um, my, my partner works in a primary school, and so she's at the moment, uh, she's in year mm. six, so she's at the moment, they're all doing SATs yes. at 11. Yeah. Um, Hellish, pointless nonsense. And very hard papers as yeah. well, and all sorts of things happening this year. I mean, there's a lot of question over these SATs these, this year, but yeah. but still, as a general rule, assessment... Well, clumsy... It's not education. Assessment is yeah, not education. No, it's not. And, and, and it, it fires forwards and backwards into the curriculum and ruins it by making it about... Wrote, well, not rote learning as such. I mean, the notion of people being able to work with grammar is a lovely idea, but they don't need to know what it's called. You know, not till a great deal later. 
you don't need to know what a fronted adverbial is as long as you can recognise a nice piece of writing and emulate it perhaps if you wanted to and then later on you can do anatomy right you know but playing is what you should be doing when you're a kid it should be Spike Milligan you know what I mean it should be silly silly verses and silly songs and rhymes and jumping around and verbally playing yeah and then later on you might someone might say isn't it interesting you know that little thing you did there that's an enjambment and they go oh okay wonderful terrific right thank now you. it makes sense yeah thank you very much because you've been using it and exactly. it kind of explains what you've been using yeah. and you can learn to use those tools better yeah. it's like getting a zebra cutting it up into tiny pieces and then showing it to people and saying there you go that's how it works <laughs> and you go well what is it <laughs> Right. And then a little bit later, oh, is that? Oh, that. Now I'm interested. Right. You know, but you've got to see the. You've got to see something beautiful or interesting or exciting first, before you want to know how it, how to. I would well for me, to anatomise something. I think you need to see the wonder of it first, and if you start with, and it can be done. I've done it. I had to teach functional skills English to uh, music students, A level, well not A level, but A level equivalent music students who were bored out of their tree with being told here's a load of rules that you have to learn in order to be able to you know pass this qualification that you don't want that you've been told you have to have as almost like a tax on the fun of you doing your music qualification that you do want to do and I thought to myself oh jeez what can I do so what I did was I played them all River Deep Mountain High by Ike and Tina Turner which is astonishingly beautiful powerful musically and lyrically and and I love it. And I, what I did was I said, oh, this is one of my favourite, favourite songs. You're all music students, so let's have a listen, see what you think. So I had a listen. Some of them knew it. Some of them never heard it before. And then I said, right, draw a picture of that song. Uh, and I went, no, oh, and then... And some of them anatomised the song because they were musicians and they drew the bass drums here and the bass line and the guitar parts. And some people drew a mountain and a river and, and other people drew abstracty things zinging all over the place. But it was funny and there was a smile in the air. And then I said, at the end, there you go, you've invented written language, <laughs> you know, because what you've done is you've taken, you've drawn a picture that represents a noise, that represents an idea. And that's what written language is. It's a picture that conjures a noise in your head, that conjures a meaning connoted to that noise. And then I kind of went through a whole kind of, you know, you're worth it kind of thing of saying, in which case... If you, you, you as a unique individual artistic human being, have amazingly complicated things that you want to communicate to the world, don't you? And everyone sort of says, yes, I, I have that. And you say, right, well, then your pictures that you draw of those amazingly complicated, nuanced thoughts need to be as accurate as possible if you want to communicate those thoughts in the fullness of their detail and nuance to the world. And that's why it's worth knowing where to put your apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's worth knowing where to put a capital letter or whether to have T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R or T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. Because your artistic appreciators will not be able to fully comprehend what you're trying to communicate from your immortal soul if your pictures are inaccurate. Right. right and that was a way of getting people interested in grammar without going, here's some rules that you must learn. Apostrophes here, da, da, da. nothing for plurals. Da, da, da. Who gives a shit? Yeah, no, but, sure. But you give people a hook, a way in, and they go, oh, right, yeah, okay. Now, at least, even if I never get it, I know where I might be going and why I might be going there. Not, I'm going to kill any appreciation you ever had <laughs> for anything written down right. by making you learn 
brick by brick rather than showing your you know showing you the wall right a crappy analogy for that I one, thought but. it was a fine analogy <laughs> and I wouldn't I don't wouldn't worry about it analogies you know they yeah. they, they happen and then they disappear in, yeah. in moments <laughs> the point is education should be drawing people out shouldn't it it should be inspiring and exciting and pushing and shoving and but not hammering and packing there's a whole notion isn't there of this kind of jam factory let's jam them full of stuff and then weigh them and see how much stuff they've managed to retain and that's fucking awful that's an awful awful thing no sure to, 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 to do to a, to a young soul it is and it should it's absolute but then it depends what your motivation is and that's where we would get into drifting into questioning the motivation of the current administration and so what they actually want an education system for yeah, who's it for and what they want, What do they want it to do? And what product are they attempting to engineer? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and so, I mean, you, you teach adults as well at this point. I do now. I don't do much teaching anymore because I've sort of, I've taken the principal shilling and moved into sort of, but what I suppose I do is I try and help teachers, younger teachers, to remember that what they do is a noble thing. It's a beautiful, noble thing. And there's all sorts of paperwork and all sorts of stuff that can drag you down and you can get bogged in it. Or you can see it as the kind of the burden you carry in order to be able to go on your noble quest to enrich the lives of others. And I kind of I get kind of evangelical and I go around these various conferences and training events. And I'm, I, I'm kind of evangelical about coming away from here's how you would technically go through this system you're training somebody to do uh, internal verification or something like that but you go to why would you care about this system in the first place and try and say because it's all connected to this great and noble thing that you could do if you wanted to and then hopefully you don't mind so much the tiresome minutiae because you've got a sense of mission right no, absolutely um, so I mean like what like so there's a, there's a few questions I I have to ask, but I'm trying to work out which one to go to first. I guess the so you've taught people um, how to appreciate words. When did you first start appreciating words? It's going to sound terribly glib, but um, I can't think of a time when I didn't. I was a, uh, a very actually I was a very listening kid. My mum talks even more than I do. And apparently when I was tiny in the in the sort of in the cot, she would sing and talk to me all day about whatever she was doing because there was a, there was another person in the house and she So I think I must have got focused on certainly on language very early on. Um and then Spike Milligan um, nonsense poetry, the noises of words and the way they feel in your mouth. I don't know, I think I was conscious of that at the time, but certainly gling glong, bling blang, ning nang nong and all those kind of things. And my, then I, I could recite those things like really early. Like when I was five and six, I was reciting stuff. Um, and I can still do it now, like adverts from the late 70s <laughs> are still all just locked away. Uh, anything with a rhythm and a rhyme will just just sticks. And then, and then, Roald Dahl, um, C.S. Lewis, all the kind of classic kid stuff. But I was quick, and I read very quickly, and I got bored very quickly. And I always wanted the next thing, and the next book, and the next thing, and the next. And I think 
that's what maybe is missing from today's today's youth. You know, <laughs> this notion that you know there's there's the best stuff. You know, you just devour it, and I did. I was a uh, I used to so I listened a lot when I was tiny. Started talking as soon as I could start talking. Started reading. I don't remember. I I remember the first ever book I read in infant school. It was I think it was called Numbers or An- Some Animals, and it's pictures with tiger. This is a tiger. Da, da, da. And then from there, those graded reading systems. I think by the time I was in the second year of infant school, I was kind of finished with that, and I was reading all sorts of stuff. Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I think, was probably the first one. The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. Right. But that's, see, that's lovely, because the language in that is so poetic. And you can still, you know, the Iron Man came to the top of the cliff, how far had he walked, nobody knows, where had he come from, nobody knows. It's got this wonderful rhythm mm-hmm. to it. And then the, it's, and then, you, and then I've, I think I just wanted to play really early on with words. And also, I liked attention, and children, and, pa- and parents, and adults like a, a sort of clever, slightly mouthy, but reasonably respectable kid. Right. <laughs> so, so, so was that your like party turn was to stand up and recite some? I used to get asked to do that kind of thing. I had to recite. A, which I think is, is a weird thing is I can still do it. When I was in the second year of junior school, so I was what eight or nine. We did a Christmas Carol as the school play, and I played Fred, uh, Scrooge's nephew, and I had a recitation to do at the dinner party scene. So I learnt this when I was eight years old, a recitation. And it's about two, three minutes long. I could do it now if you if you want to hear it. <laughs> uh, and it's basically like a long, rumty-tum poem about a, an horrible old man who falls down the stairs and dies. And it's kind of... And Scrooge is listening, you know, so he's obviously hearing something... You know, so that's, dramatically that's how it works. But my dad sat me every time he drove me... He didn't drive me to school, but we'd go out on a Saturday to the woods or wherever it was. And in the van, it would always be, right, let's run it. Let's have a go. Let's try it again. No, you've got that bit wrong. Try again. And he was always re- really into... I think he liked having a clever kid. Right, what was it, What was his background? Uh, my dad was a fridge repairman who had learnt that trade in the army, having previously been a... He fixed motorbikes, uh, and then he fixed cars, and then he had no money, so he joined the army, which was what blokes from his background did. Right. Learnt a trade, served in Northern Ireland. Um, has... Had, and it's interesting, my dad, he sort of became a hippie around the same time I became a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like when I was 17, 18, then I started, you know, um, listening to The Velvet Underground and, and, and The Doors. The 91, the film The Doors came out and we right. kind of leapt on that. Yeah. And around the same time, he started getting into Dali and reading The Guardian instead of The Sun and all sorts of stuff. And he kind of had a, his adolescence around the same time I was having my late adolescence. Oh, interesting. So he became peculiar later on, having had, a, up to that point, pretty straightforward, you know, leave school at 14, get a job, join the army, learn a trade, work in your trade, get married, have a kid, blah, 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 on and on. And, um, yeah, he became very strange. Well, not very, you know I mean, but strange in the context of his contemporaries who right. always saw him as the... <clears throat> The outlier. Right, he started to stand out yeah, amongst right. the, the people he spent... The yeah, and he spent most of his, of his life, life with, with the same... My mum and dad had the same kind of four or five couples that they were friends with from when they were teenagers to this day. Right. They're still sort of, apart from the ones that aren't around anymore. 
but yeah, so so I was kind of I think he liked and he had early on this idea that okay, this is me. I failed my eleven plus, but I've got a kid who would have passed his eleven plus. Right. And so I was always fostered and pushed. But but demands weren't made. It wasn't like you must succeed. You might, it was always very open and broad. And do what you find exciting, do what you find interesting. And what I liked was reading. Yeah, and I mean, you are someone who I think of, like, often I think of you as, as just someone who has a lot of knowledge. Like, I mean, I don't know if that's a, that's probably a weird thing for you to say about yourself, but, like, you, you have a lot of knowledge over a lot of different topics. Like, you have a lot of, you know, you, you'd be a great person to be on a quiz. <laughs> I, I'm pretty, I like quizzes. Um, <laughs> Fair, yeah. But I retain stuff, that's all it is, it sticks. I read something once, or I, what happens, what I love, probably my favourite thing to do, one of the reasons why, for me, the internet is a really dangerous place, is <laughs> <laughs> because I love the connections. So we could talk about comics, or we could talk about... Um, OK, Disney's um, Frozen, right, is allegedly based on the Snow Queen, Hans Christian Andersen. Right. But it misses out the most important part about the Snow, in my opinion, about the Snow Queen, which is she has this uh, sort of evil mirror. And at the beginning of the thing, it smashes. And splinters of this mirror go all over the world into thousands of different places. And Kay, who is the hero of the original story's brother, gets a splinter in his heart. And he slowly turns it to ice. And that's why Gerda has to go to find her brother in the Ice Queen's uh, castle. Right. And try and bring him back from becoming absolutely melancholy and miserable and having a heart of ice. But that metaphor of the mirror shattering and going going into all of these hundreds of millions of places all over the world is like how I sort of see the kind of artworks that I like. Right. Yeah? Interesting. Because you've got similar things pushing through, similar notions about, I suppose, about... Freedom of thought, freedom of expression, creativity, lack of boundaries, all the stuff that makes people prejudiced. You know, you've got it in Angela Carter and you've got it in Tom Robbins and you've got it in Grant Morrison and Alan Moore and you've got it in so many different art. So you, whenever I'm reading something or finding out something or watching a film, I'm going, ah, ha, 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 ha. that's connected to that thing I read once. Right. And then that will make me go back to Alan Garner, Alan Garner, you know, that gorgeous glorious mythology yeah. that's built into the landscape uh, and then the passion and the and the and the, the pride that comes through that but i'm seeing the same basal impetus right in so many different things all and you look at like echoes the, and resonance echoes and resonance is precisely yeah. and 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 the fact that in our in our fantasies stories films books it's the outliers and the mavericks who are the heroes uh, and the heroines but nobody keeps that. Once the lights go on at the end of the film, yeah, you're back to your mundane, banal, daily survival concerns, forgetting how much you were on the side of the weirdo five seconds before, how much you were on the side of the strange person. And I always want to be on the side of the strange person. <laughs> Julian Cope was another person who kind of led me. Music, oh, music's the one, again, that's what I forgot. Julian Cope, uh, Luke Haynes, so many... Uh, astonishing writers, Elvis Costello, and you just get dexterous, careful, powerful lyric, but it's also got these same threads and veins right. running through it. And so you'll find, and, and then there's an amazing T.C. Lethbridge quote, which I only heard via Julian Cope. Uh, those who have had any dealings with the odd are not interested in the disbelief of those who have not. So my, I suppose my, if I have a mission, it's to kind of try and say to everybody, there's loads of stuff. 
There's so many more things that you, you are you interested in that? Well, why not have a look at this? Right. You know, because connecting everything up. Connecting, but also setting people free. That right. bit in, that bit in V for Vendetta when uh, V says to Evie, I've opened the doors of the cage, but you have to come out. Right. You know, and that chapter, which is the only good thing about the film, because <laughs> they get that bit. I haven't seen it, Kyle. Oh, I, I, I don't want to see the film. You don't ruin I promise you, it's all right. I might come back to it now that the Wachowskis have made uh, sort of... Um, it was was it was, it was Kowski, yeah, right, yeah. and they, now they've made Sense Eight. Mm. I, I might go back to the films I skipped of theirs it's, and it's, reevaluate it's them so, because Sense Eight is so good. I haven't seen um, that, and that is a that's a piece of art that does the kind of thing that you're talking yeah. about. All of those connections from and all over the place and takes them, puts them together. I mean, I think that's quite a good description of of a lot of the kinds of art that I like. I mean, I'm sure you're the same. You'll have exceptions. Yeah, sometimes yeah. something that's really simple and just about one thing and doesn't doesn't have this kind yeah. of wonderland. It, within it can still appeal to me my favourite artworks are those medieval galleries at the National right because you walk around there and you see a visual language and for me words is much much more important but in those I'm seeing the precursor because that was the language that spoke to people in a pre-literate in a largely pre-literate culture so all of those things the position of the fingers in the figures in the paintings has coded meanings built into them right some of them quite esoteric and peculiar and others quite straightforward and and simple and the fact that those images were so punching and powerful for the same kind of people that alan garner writes about when he writes about his family in the 17th his ancestors in the 17th century and things like the stonebook quartet right 18th century possibly yeah. and that thing that he's always seeking for are kind of an er truth if that's not too pretentious a way of putting it and that's what I didn't like I had a totally postmodernist arts education right. I went to Crew and Alsager in 1992 to 1995 just after the Sensation exhibition you know at the height of Emin and, and uh, what's his name the bald fella out of Fat Les uh, uh, Damien right. Hurst Damien Hurst uh, <laughs> and that kind of art that seemed not to matter you know oh that was Jeff, post Jeff Coonsy fucking about with trivial shite and it has power for some people and that's fine and as you look at some of those objects they're quite beautiful but they're not beautiful in the way that uh, Duchamp did this, did that joke in 1917 yeah but that I mean you know that's the thing I mean or the Dardarion with the nails yeah but it. I mean Duchamp was kind of you could, there's an argument that he was a postmodern artist, whereas I wouldn't necessarily put Tracy Emin into that box. Certainly not. The stuff that she makes is very personal. Uh, whether it's it good better. or not, it depends on your view. I think it was. The I like her writing more than her art. I mean, she. I, I know she's. I think she doesn't do very much writing because she's. I think she's dyslexic. I'm not sure uh, people will know that or not. Mm. But I mean, I went to see a kind of exhibition of her stuff in Margate a few years ago because we just happened to be in Margate and she's got that relationship with that place, and the art didn't really do very much for me. Although I like. I mean, I like the bed and I like stuff like that. I mean, I'm a big. I'm a big supporter of uh, oversharing personal work, sure. uh, as this show is a testament of. <laughs> yeah. That she'd written this like description, like a, like like just a, like a, a piece of writing about the exhibition, and that moved me uh, in a way that nothing in the actual See, exhibition. And, and, that, and that's the thing that that stuff seems to exist in this in this. It's so arch that it it doesn't connect. Right. You know, and and the medieval stuff is similarly constructed and product of its time but it feels like it wants to to connect with me and i don't it's the same as spoken word material if stuff is too straightforwardly solipsistic i'm i find it really hard to find a way in 
I think if you're going to put your work in front of an audience in that very direct way, you have a duty, and this is probably my theatrical training, to make it accessible, to let people in somehow. Uh, and in a, an experimental theatre world, you've got, you're pretty confident you're going to have an audience that's kind of into experimental theatre. Right. And they will sit there and they will go, oh, yeah, I can see what's going on, I can access that, and I can find... You know, but when it's just you and words and a microphone or even not a microphone in a room with other people who are equally capable of doing what you're doing, though perhaps less motivated to do so, you've got to be really sure, I think, that what you've got to say is going to be able to communicate with the people that are listening. Right. Just talking about yourself is not sufficient. If you, you know, if you've had if you've had a, 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 an enlightening experience or a traumatic experience and you want to share that, why? Why do you want to share it? What's the purpose of you sharing uh, it's it? It's an interesting question. Because it's, it's the same as the actor's motivation thing. It's like, if it's going to convince, I really want you to know why you're sharing it with me. And if, I, if you say to me afterwards, and now that I'm older, I get, I'm less, I'm more grumpy about it. <laughs> it's like, um, if you say, what do you think of that piece? If you want a straightforward, oh, I quite, quite enjoyed that, I can do that. But if you really want to talk about it, the first thing I'm going to ask, if you're asking my opinion, which you don't have to do, Right. But if you were asking, it's like, why have you put that in front of people? What's the purpose for you? Because if your purpose is to garner attention for yourself, as far as I'm concerned, that's not sufficient. But can't you find out what the reason is through the act of performance? I, I would like you to be able to articulate it for me if you've asked me what I think. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's, that, it's yeah. a valid question to ask an artist, and I think a yeah. helpful one. Um, I'm not sure that some of the greatest artists that we probably would both enjoy would necessarily have been right. able to answer it and I'm, about their pieces uh, that we we might admire greatly. I mean, I think this, yeah, this, yeah. it's a very complicated thing, the arts. I, th- I mean, again, I think criticism is a little bit like it's helpful, it's always helpful, mm. but like it doesn't really matter if it's good or it's bad or it's saying one thing or another. It it pushes you, the artist, to decide what you think. So if you say something to me and I don't agree with it, like I don't agree uh, with you about personal narratives to a certain extent, um, although I do in some ways, and I am very much a kind of artist, you must craft it uh, kind of person, and that's where I come from. And that might be sufficient. Well, yeah, but that's where I come from. But now, you know, over my artistic development, I have done so much true storytelling and and hosted nights of open mic true storytelling that I guess my ideas around why you tell a personal story are kind of they're more diffuse it's more about kind of a community about sharing about all of these things that I don't think it would matter if an everyday because people at Spark and that, and that, they're everyday people and, and they, they're not artists yeah, so they don't they wouldn't that, know why they're and that's out. sufficient right that's it if it you know it I think it's it's because a, a lot of open mic nights, particularly, you get you get stuff that's quite hard to see. What is selfish, but what's in it for me? Right. Well, an open mic. I mean, I think that's very true about open mics, spoken word open mics, even music open mm. mics, particularly music open mics. Actually, for me, I mean, I probably enjoy an, a spoken word open mic more than I There's do always a, a music one. To be honest, and I, and I love I love the stuff you've never heard anything like that before, even if. In the final analysis, it might not be tremendously... Right. The, the problem with music open mics is you so often just get mediocre yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Whereas at least spoken word, you get terrible yeah. and brilliant. And, like, you and know, everything in between. And thoroughly peculiar, which are my favourites. Right, right, right. You know, I, I love to go to, some, to see a thing and I go, where'd that come from? Right. Now that, again, is sufficient. 
Right. Because it's because at least it's new. Right. <laughs> you know, but if, if this, I just think you owe it to the art form, unless you're extremely young, you know, and very very fresh, to go to a couple of things, before you do your piece, and then go. Okay, so there's an awful lot of stuff about uh, young men with glasses splitting up with girls they didn't really understand. As an example. Right. Okay, so what's different about your one? Right. You know, that's your story and it's super personal to you and that's terrific. So, but provide me with a bit of detail. Provide me with a reason why, having heard that story a hundred times perhaps, you know, and you don't, I don't know if I want people to be conscious of it. I I think I just want to be, I tried buying new indie records all through the 90s and the early 2000s going, I really want something that's going to hit me in the way that Pulp did the first time I heard Pulp or the Wonder Stuff. Pulp are amazing. Five or six years earlier. You know, I want something... uh, People will say the Wonder Stuff are entirely mediocre and maybe... But for me at the time, that was fresh and brilliant and exciting. I've not heard stuff like that before. Well, that's always the way with art, though, because the people who you like will be copying loads of people. And if you haven't heard those loads of people Mm. that they're copying, then those are the people who've introduced you to those ideas. It doesn't matter if they were borrowing it from people that have gone before. And actually, it's interesting... Because uh, I'm into music too, and I sort of like got really into the history of music mm. and lo- looked back at different uh, periods that I wasn't a part of that I might have wished I had been. Um, and like quite often, when I do go far enough back, I don't like the the people who coined it, the people who came up with it, as mm. much as two generations later when it's when they've you know when they've made it accessible. Because mm. the outliers, yeah. the outliers, kind of push the boundaries, and then to generations the in, they get, it gets kind of people are like making it accessible as well as incorporating the difference, the interestingness yeah. about I that I stuff. Don't, I don't ever want to stop people from trying new things or doing their thing because it's new and fresh right. for them. I, exactly. I, I never want to do. In fact, my point, my position is. Uh, what's the word crumbling under analysis um, um, I don't know I just think if it's just about you I, I don't think it's enough that's that's that's. and if a young in my peculiar 20 years in the business position someone came to me and said what would you advise me to do I want to do I'm doing what I've got my first book slot on Tuesday okay if it's all about you it's not enough and that's interesting because the thing that most people say, and I think it's a cliche and it's tiresome and people should probably stop saying it, um, but the thing that most people say when they give someone advice is, write what you know, right? Yeah. And uh, what they know is themselves, Yeah, right? but they might know things around themselves or they might have a... <laughs> I agree, yeah, well, I agree have, with you. Or they, or they might have a, a particular um, angle on something that people haven't heard before or that's particular to them. And honestly, they won't know, they, whoever they are, won't know everything, but... I would just say for me as an audience member, if it's just about you, just no, exclusively, a... I'm not. I'm going to find it very hard to be interested unless. Or, well, like I say, I mean that's. It what could I be think... technique or craft that raises it. But I think you saying that is great. I mean, I it, it resonates with with things I've felt sometimes. But this is what I'm saying: if someone listening is an artist and they don't agree with that then that's great. Absolutely. Because that will spur them to make better work that's just about themselves yeah. to show that Lee Nelson yeah, doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. <laughs> um, whereas somebody else, might that might be exactly what they need to hear that moment to go home and not do something about themselves instead do something about something else and that mm-hmm. takes them to a completely different place. Yeah, like, the, self can, uh, you know, the self is a, is a very uh, political thing particularly and that's, I suppose, if someone was to say to me, what's your work for? Right. My my work is uh, it sounds awful when 
you say it plainly as this, but it's I'm attempting to change minds. Right. Whether I'm doing that in the right place, I probably should be, you know, on street corners howling at people. But if you're, if you're doing it to, take, to change minds, isn't that education? Yeah, it's precisely that. Everything I do has become that. I think, you know, hopefully it's not become a pompous thing. Right. Um, and I certainly don't think I've got huge numbers of answers to give anybody, but I might have uh, techniques. Right. Uh, you know, ways of looking at things, ways of thinking about things, and, and that might be of benefit. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, because I, I studied theatre yeah. at university, contemporary experimental theatre. I'm not a massive fan of that genre. I didn't know There's it was... good stuff. A, I didn't know it was... I know I agree mm. there is good <laughs> stuff, um, but I didn't know it was a genre when I decided mm. to study it. I thought it just meant contemporary and mm-hmm. experimental, which are great words, mm-hmm. and I, I love things that are contemporary and experimental. Uh, just <clears throat> that genre, like all genres, there's some good and there's some bad, but a lot of what I saw was bad. But anyway, <laughs> um, to 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 sort of like come out of the, oh, I, now now I'm trying to work out why why I was revealing that I did theatre. Oh yeah, that's right. I did a module in theatre and education, okay. and um, what my group decided to do was to try and change uh, the understanding of kids because that when we thought about it what's the most kind of best thing that education can do it's that unquantifiable thing of just changing your understanding yeah, or, right? or, or allowing for a wider one or, or showing right. or showing a path you've not considered before and, or anything like and that. so then when we did that project we we i mean i think it was a pretty good project we did the victorian age with primary school kids and we tried to get them to kind of think how it might have felt to be in those times i mean that's what is interesting to about history yeah. for me is is oh. the human and it's kind of a little bit like what you were saying about get people interested in the things that matter and then teach them the skills yeah, later yeah. that i guess that's what we were trying to do but our project that we eventually had to hand in had to have this presentation and uh, frame it all within education and that became a an impossible mission in how do we quantify a change in understanding and, and, they, and we concluded you can't and you can't and there's your problem with ed, with education at the moment uh, and has been for successive governments actually it isn't just the current shower right because no uh, one's no one believes you've done good education unless you can measure. show them that you can measure what yeah. you've done but then you don't know then you can't measure one of the things they'll teach you uh, in teacher training is writing an objective for a session yeah you cannot put abstract na- verbs into your objectives so you cannot say by the end of this session the students will understand the concept of experimental contemporary theatre right because there's no way of measuring understanding right so what you have to do is be linguistically fancy and clever and go by the end of this session the students will be able to articulate a working definition of contemporary experimental theatre because that's measurable but if you teach them how to do that, then it means that they will go out of that lesson being able to regurgitate a definition rather go. than understanding anything fundamental about theatre. Probably. And I mean, a you, mix no, of both. No, you're, you're right. I mean, if there'll you be elements it, of it. But you, you, of at, course they'll learn at, something. At the grimmest end of it, yeah. that's precisely the outcome. And the more and more you're talking about sats and understanding what a fronted advert... I don't know what a fronted advert <laughs> is. I'm sure I could look it up. Right, um, you and know. if you don't know it, it's a, it suggests to me that it's an un, unusual well, thing because you know a lot. I can of probably, things. I mean, I, I did English language A level, which at the time was linguistics, so we did quite a lot of you know parts of speech, what they used to call parts of speech at school, and breaking sentences up into clauses and blah 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 blah. And then I had to teach 
functional skills English, so I get to do simple compound and complex sentences. And you'd see people going, right, a simple sentence is this, a complex sentence is that, a, com uh, a compound sentence is that, and a complex sentence is this, go and write some. Think you silly bastard, you're being paid to teach people, you know, getting them to regurgitate crap you've told them that may or may not be of any use to them is an insult and patronising and it's infantilising. So you go, okay, what's the shortest sentence I can think of? Okay, the shortest sentence I can think of is, in terms of even letters, is I am. Okay, as in I exist in the, you know, what's it, uh, current, present tense, first person of the verb to be, am. So I am, three letters. So you say to people, okay, so I want you to write a poem called I Am. Yeah, it's the shortest sentence. Like it fulfills the definition of a sentence, of a simple sentence. It has subject and verb. So I am. And I want you to put five simple sentences at the top. I am, I am Alan. I am a boy. I am, you know. And then you go, I am Alan and I like chips. Because I like chips is a simple sentence. I am Alan is a simple sentence with the conjunction. That's a compound sentence. And then a complex sentence means you have to have a dependent clause that could not stand on its own. So you'd have to make one up off the top of my head now. I am Alan and I like chips because my dad likes chips. Okay. Now, because my dad likes chips does not stand on its own as a simple sentence. So therefore you've created a complex sentence. Right. And then it's fun. And afterwards, you go back and you say to them, oh, brilliant, read your poems out. Let's see, let's see what you've got to say. And they say, I am Alan, I like chips, I like football. Um, you know, I, my sister doesn't understand. But you get to this point where they've done simple sentences, compound sentences, complex sentences. And then you go, now, pass it to the other group and see if they can pick out your simple, your compound and your complex. Right. And that's... But you've essentially taught them to you taught them to, 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 to some linguistic skills, but you've also done it ironically yeah. in the context of this conversation uh, in a way that was teaching them to uh, just talk about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but they're tiny kids. They're allowed to talk about themselves. Right, right, yeah. right. But, but, they're at the age when it's acceptable. Well, when it's charming, isn't it? <laughs> you know, when, so once you get past the age of 16, stop thinking about yourself anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, but you're right. Yeah, fair enough, fair point. But... But that's the thing. It's, it's the lack of imagination and of system, the way it exists, stomps on the creativity in a 19-year-old person who's going to go and do a teaching degree and they're going to get told, oh, dear, lesson plans, objectives, all this fucking shit. Yeah. Pardon me, I get really angry about no, this. No, no, that's um, fine. Anger is perfectly, uh, because Because, uh, yes, that's technique. That's refinement and stuff. That's, that's the bones. But why do you want to do it? What's right. it for? And that's in there as well. I'm not suggesting teacher training courses are dreadful, but when you get a job, the first thing you'll, you'll get told is we're going to come and observe you and you, you better make sure you've got your objectives right and your lesson plan and blah, blah, blah. Right. And that just kills it. Right. And all the joy that there might be in somebody struggles to survive in that, yeah. in that miasma of marketing shit. Right. And that's what offends. It's right. the idea that we... We you know the the cost of everything and the value of nothing, right? <laughs> and but you don't let that into education. You don't let that into health. Well, too late. Well, Hannah, it's in there. They, they've they've opened the door. They, they've well, closed they've, the door. They've, they've it's, the doors have been thrown the off door. the building and, and and shoved into a skip. And the wounds stitched up with the pus inside. Um, right. But the thing is, I mean, so we kind of get an idea. I get an idea <laughs> of of 
what you think education is for and how you think it is failing in some ways um, as a made, system. Or being made to fail. Yeah, exactly. The, the education itself is a high, noble pursuit. Absolutely. But the From both cage, the prison that's around it, um, is, is, is not so noble. So that's what you think about education. But why do you think about education? Why did you end up becoming someone who's, who's basically your, your, your creative work and your personal work, your, your financial work, all of these things, work, yeah. everything is to do with educating. And, and even in, in friendships, when I've, when I've <laughs> hung out with you in Edinburgh uh, and we've you know, gone out for, for, for meals or whatever, yeah, and like the, for that cheap uh, in uh, yeah, the bus kitchen that was delicious and, and 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 like you educate everyone and everyone likes it i mean it's it's it's, it's, it's i mean i'm sure not everybody that you meet likes it but the kind of people i hang out with I've will go to, here's someone who can tell us some stuff I've let's learned, just sit in court i've, I've and, learned to make yeah. it likable right uh, <laughs> through having been a ferociously overbearing wanker in the past and i'm sure sure no, to I, this will be able to pick up and echoes I can, of that and I can relate to that I've, I've yeah. definitely been a wanker in the past and I hope to be a, an improving one yeah. a I lesser think, one now. again it's about motivation it's like do you if I want and I think I did used to want to and this is again the the, the, the one of the few benefits of of ageing is that I've had a huge ego and a massive desire to impress people and so and from my parents onwards so pack loads of facts and keep songs and shit into a child's head impress 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 applause funnily enough though his best examples best uh, subjects at school are sciences he fucks off into drama where he gets lots of applause and lots of attention right and a legitimate expectation that he's going to be an attention seeking prick right uh, which I did very very well yeah <laughs> uh, but then um, I, I found that I was teaching is like um, for me anyway has been and that's the, that's the that's the thing. So previously, I would have said teaching is, and continued to say what I thought teaching was, but now I remember to go teaching is for me anyway. Right, <laughs> you know? that's like one of the the yeah that is yeah. definitely a, a, an advantage I'm finding with age is yeah. that I'm managing to do that just, kind of thing. Just pull more. yourself out. Yeah. This is why why I can with a straight face say people shouldn't do stuff that's just about them, even though I'm engaged in a conversation about yourself. That's just about me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it also comes out of a sense of duty from where I was doing my teacher training. The, the unit I found the most exciting was the history unit, the history of FE and where FE, particularly FE, came from. And it came from self-improvement, the, the sort of post-Victorian working people's desire for self-improvement. So FE colleges grew out of the Miners Institutes and the Union Colleges and all those kind of places where people paid their subscriptions. Right. would work a back-breaking week and then on a Saturday if they weren't working or a Sunday afternoon they'd go and hear an improving lecture and they paid money out of their wages because that was this wonderful notion of of improving the self because there was time to do it in a way that there perhaps hadn't been and I thought this is astonishing that's beautiful what a beautiful idea and that's that's and it's, I suppose it's also to do with my own background my lowly background which I trumpet reasonably loudly I was pushed you can go to university you can go to university but so it was an expectation but not in the same way that the people I met at university had had that expectation right because no one else in my family actually I tell a distant relative on the my father's side who we never saw he'd gone but in terms of the family that I saw around me 
my mum's extended family who we saw at weddings and funerals and things. Right. Manual workers in the main. Skilled manual workers, but manual workers in the main. Right. Builders, car mechanics, that kind of thing. Quite a lot of them actually reasonably well off because they were good at their jobs and worked hard. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but in terms of... Most well-off person I know who I went to school with is a builder. Yeah, there you, you know, go. Well, there's a lot of money inter- there. Yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, thing. And also a lot of satisfaction. The fact that you like you do a thing, and I think a lot of you know, effete wankers like us, you know, you look, you look at your work and you go, oh, I'm agonising, is it satisfying? But you build something. Right. Oh, look at that. I, did I that. know, there's a sense of achievement. Absolutely, that I a really simple, pure. About, yeah. Well, it's the same like, you know, when you, uh, you know, if you, uh, I suppose, lesser extent, painting a picture, but building a model. Right. You know, or working, playing with Lego. <laughs> you just make this thing and it finished and it was them bits and now it's that thing. And you did that. And the outcome is really visible. Right. And really clear. And that's. Anyway, you can assess it. Yeah, you can, you can, you can assess quantify it. it. You can do both of that, and, and it's satisfying to have done it. Or painting a shed, even. It was like that, and now it's like that. And there's a, a massive desire, isn't there, in, in humanity to make a mark, to say, I was here. You know, and I think that kind of plays into that notion. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Same thing as cave painting. This is, I was here, I have changed this elemental thing by my presence. Right, whereas education or poetry, they're much more ephemeral. I mean, yeah. written poetry, if it becomes published work, maybe that's as a, a monument in the same yeah. way that a building might be. But certainly educating someone in a classroom or what... in, a, in a room doing some yeah. poetry to people who don't buy your book at the end and go home and just have your yeah. words vaguely in their yeah. head. But that's why if someone comes up to you afterwards and says, oh, thank you very much, that really made a difference, it made me feel better about X, then you get the feeling. That's right. why the appreciation yeah, is important, yeah, sure. because you've seen the effect. Yeah, yeah sure. You know, cause and effect. And it's, you haven't estimated that effect. Another being has told you what the effect of what you did was. You know, Judy Garland needs people to clap Right, yeah, that's the effect. She's done this thing. There's an effect. That's her satisfaction. Although I always hate the clapping bit. I can't handle it. I, <laughs> uh, writing plays, I always wrote plays that, that had some narrative reason to get rid of the clap or to make a, a mockery of the clap or to, to avoid the clap. Um, I, always avoid the clap. <laughs> well, I, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, at Spark, I kind of make a, an awkward kind of communal thing of that bowing and clapping like because that's people have got up and they're everyday people some of them some of them are creative yeah. people whatever but everyone is everybody i mean and everyone yeah, yeah. everyone's creative and everyone's everyday these ba- false binaries yeah. are all over the place but like getting everybody up and then making us all sort of bow together like which i think is ridiculous and and I don't like myself. It's become something that I do understand now. Well, an audience like I understand. Wants it. The audience wants it, and it's 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 disrespectful to an, for an artist not to give like have some understanding of what an audience needs. Mm-hmm. If you've asked them to absorb your art, you need to have a kind of exit plan for them. You have to yeah. help them out of that art. I mean, that's kind of a thing that I think is very pertinent when you talk about doing personal art and why are you bringing up these like complicated emotional things that have happened to you I, I think if you do do that and you're an artist not if you're an everyday person standing up at an open mic what happens in that moment is fine and, and, and mm. that's great but if you're someone who's crafting it if you're thinking about it then you do have to have like where am I leaving my audience how do I have an exit plan for them how do I what 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 is the purpose like yeah. you say of saying these personal things yeah absolutely. absolutely it has to be considered and thought through 
unless it's really really raw folk stuff which comes from some somewhere else yeah I mean the most interesting thing I've done is I did a, a course it was slightly slower than I would have liked in the history of folk in England folk song in England at the English Folk Dance and Song Society Cecil Sharp House in Camden ah. really really interesting because there's there's the whole kind of there's a very nerdy side to folk is it folk is it not folk oh, it has to be this it has to be collected from a farmer's labourer in 1850 or or is yellow submarine folk because children sing their own versions of it never probably never having heard the record it's been passed on you know and we used to sing we all live in a tub of vaseline when i was at right. school and does that mean yellow yellow submarine is now a folk song because it belongs to the children in the playground well i think that yeah, I, I, that, yeah. and i love that that <laughs> no, that, no, that notion of what folk is yeah. the passed on Thing, the thing that's been taken possession of by no one and everyone. Yeah, but copyright law gets in the way of that. Well, it does, but no one's going to, you know, it, do, it does. <laughs> yes, if you, but then no one really, want, nobody really wants to profit from folk art in that same way if it's genuine. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a complicated one, isn't it? Like the idea of passing on songs from generation to generation. You know, that's a folk tradition. Uh, which isn't just a Western folk tradition, it's a, no. all over the world. That's how we passed on, not just songs. It's how you but talk. That's like everything. Like, poetry mm-hmm. was a, a, a way of passing down knowledge from generation and to lessons. generation, right? And, fo- and same as folk tales are ways of instilling vital survival myths into into a primitive right, people. Right, right, You know, if you want to teach your children not to go into the dark and dangerous parts of the forest... You don't wag your finger at them and tell them, don't go into the dark and dangerous parts of the forest because they'll go, oh, that sounds interesting. I'll go and have a look. But if you say, ah, in there, let me tell you the story of the Utu Kapiv who lurks in the dark, you know, or the Vashta Narada from the Doctor Who thing. Let me tell you that story. And people go, oh, yeah, all right, fair enough. <laughs> and especially if they've got no other contrasting narrative to go with right. that, then you create folk demons, folk devils and... But in all of these things are like they they connect as well. Like so, people add to it. People change the mythology. People add. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you were talking about Frozen and you were talking about the original Snow Queen myth. Yeah, he would have ripped um, from somewhere. I'm sure. Well, I'm I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it was. But I, what what came into my mind when you were talking about that was that uh, the TV series Once Upon a Time kind of squared that circle they had uh, Elsa uh, come, in, come into their series from the Frozen, Frozen film yeah, yeah. but they also had the original uh, Snow Queen be the villain of that mm-hmm. uh, and, and and explored all of those things again and like so then there it was like the original and the thing that it kind of created coming back together and creating a new thing and that's I mean that's an interesting way that and, and stories love, the see, words the ideas that's work. where we were ages ago talking yeah. about echoes and, right. and similar driving ideas coming through it's, it's always the outlier and the maverick that's the the focus and the interesting thing about the story you know and then we're happy to be con- once we come out of the story to go it's just a story Right, and and so nothing changes. But how do we how do we retain the maverick in our hearts? I've written songs about it, but I want to. And also, I guess the other question is how many mavericks are when you uh, dig a little deeper underneath them? Just the establishment, basically, as a character. Possibly, but then you look at you look at definitely a question. But if you're looking at a world where uh, you feel that everything that your culture taught you was beautiful is what is not emphasised by those who are in charge of your culture. If you see what I mean. Yeah, no, sure. Um, what's happening there? 
why are we raised to and and, and have these these stories these i mean we're not talking about small you know every every film but every uh, every right i mean uh, it's telling you you know here's the first oh, here's the first order mechanized oh, do nazis we will kill you and you know and over here's this plucky band of rebels yeah yeah you yeah. know it happened to in the first series of course of the first films be you know white uh straight well that's guys. All, we haven't even touched on any of those things <laughs> you know but that's what i mean i mean it's like okay yeah i see that, in, in, the, in that respect when you look at these kind of outsider heroes that we've created in our fiction we have really like those 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 outsider yeah, heroes okay. yeah, yeah, you can cool. easily if you scratch the surface they don't do, they turn out to be much more reactionary than they're yeah. packaged to be i think there's an argument there's an argument that can be made around yeah. that but i yeah. also think that what you're saying is very true that the stories that we're told like there's, there's there is an argument that art is a safety valve, you know. It allows us to experience the things that we'd like to do, so we don't do them. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, um, that's miserable. I mean, that's one theory, <laughs> and I don't think that's what art is either. No, but the, like, I don't the, think the, any of these truths are the only truth. They're all well, none of them fragments, are. echoes yeah. of this bigger, bigger idea. And this is where it comes back to motivation again, because the the, the one of the reasons I rebelled against rebelled dramatic word against the kind of orthodoxy of my degree course which listen to me rebelling <laughs> again but you get the, yeah, was, yeah. was it was this early 90s the art of the self is sufficient if you're telling a story about yourself that's enough and it doesn't have to be engaged or political in explicitly I wanted that I went to university because I wanted to be on marches yeah. and sit-ins and having angry dialectical discussions about so how to make the world that, yeah. how, how to make the world better, <laughs> and that people weren't angry. I was angry. This is where it was coming from. So I I got to college and called it college. Then I was like, I well, I'm not meant to be here. You know, I'm the first of my family to come here. Kind of classic, uh, and for an earlier generation, the first sort of set of grammar school kids because I would have been if they'd still existed. I think. Came through, possibly not, came through, and Alan Garner writes about it really, really well, because he's immediately post-war. And if you haven't read, what's it called, The Voice That Thunders, which is a collection of his essays and lectures, it's so I haven't read that. It's astonishing. If you've read The Moon of Gone Wrath and With Son of Brisingerman and all those books. Yeah, Eriador and The Owl Service as well. The Owl Service is probably my favourite. It's that one. And then there's also The Slot, there's Redshift. Yeah, There's Stonebook Quartet, which is beautiful. There's Thurs Bitch, very good. Strandall Open, incredibly hard to read, um, but beautiful. Um, and then there's the like, recent one, what's it called? Boneland, which is a sort of sequel to Moon of Gomrath. Right, I haven't read that yet. That's gorgeous, astonishing. He's my favourite writer, I think, in terms of the prose he puts on the page, just the economy of it and the oomph of it. He writes about this feeling of being, coming from here, having gone here and not knowing who the fuck he is. Because he's lost in this space, yeah. he doesn't. He's been educated beyond being able to enjoy the things he was previously able to enjoy, without having to think about them. But he, listeners, these two places that that uh, Lee is pointing <laughs> to are on either side of the room. They're the furthest distance away his hands can can, can get. Go. And over here is the kind of place he's honoured and thrilled to have been able to access. Right. But everybody else there has, he can't compare journeys. Right. He can't, he can't find. He's got no witnesses on either side. Yeah, he can't find commonality with the people here beyond the academic context he's found himself in. Uh, Raymond Briggs writes about the same thing. 
Uh, you know, Raymond Briggs, who does uh, Fungus the Baby Man. Yeah, yeah, I know Raymond Briggs. Have you, have you read Ethel and Ernest? Yes, I have, yeah. God, that broke my heart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so beautiful. Um, but when the, where the wind blows. When, and when the wind blows as well, yeah. Again, and again, that kind of, that, that uh, and Billy Bragg's Between the Wars, and <laughs> there's all, mm. again, this is what happens in my brain, is I see artworks with these common themes. Yeah. And that's why, so the Miners Institute's education, FE, blah, 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 and the fact that I had a relatively terrible time at school, then I went to Luton Sixth Form College and went, oh, this is brilliant. You know, and that's why I think I got so excited. This sense of duty that I had from where I came from, that you look after the people around you, the sense of gratitude that the system at the time seemed to gift me this opportunity to go somewhere to quest to the next place, the next book, the next set of ideas, the next odd person who could revolutionise my worldview. That was beautiful. And so I, I just want to give that to the next lot. I just want to say, that, and I did it, I, did, I had one student, I wasn't saying names. Uh, yeah, definitely don't. <laughs> uh, but she came from a similar sort of background 20 years later and she had no confidence in herself, no belief that she could do anything. But she had a thing, she wanted to be an actress. And she came to us with, she'd been a perpetual truant, this is when I worked in mainstream, perpetual truant, she hadn't got any GCSEs, she'd had a few years doing crappy jobs that made her upset and unhappy. So she came and did a level level two course GCSE equivalent, after that she did the level three course, the A-level equivalent, and off she went to Central School of Speech and Drama. And that, that potential to help somebody to... Escape is a strong word, but that's what she wanted to do. To come from, but she never wanted to leave. She just wanted to show that she had a thing to communicate to the world. Well, if we don't have actors uh, from working class backgrounds going into to the theatre, for cinema, whatever, whatever they're going into, if we don't have that, then we only the greatest actor or like who's impersonating a working class person they may be amazing but there's some things that they just don't know and I say this as someone I'm I'm middle class I I grew up with working class friends and working class estates working class people were the people who brutalised me in my childhood but they were also the people who saved me Um, that's heavy going but, 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 but like so I mean I, I'm I'm a tourist to a certain extent. My my dad worked with, like he did documentary films uh, about uh, the coal industry. So he knew mm. the the class struggle and those communities, and he reported back to me as a tourist reporting back to a, another tourist. It's the it's but the... but I know as a dramatist, if I was to write something about working class experience, I would want working class some working class influences <laughs> in it. But, I mean, you can, you can research stuff and you can ex- explore stuff. I think it's the, the difference I found, uh, and I met lots of really lovely people, I really did, and they're friends, you know, to this day. Right. But it was the difference in expectation. And I, I've told this story a zillion, trillion times. I sort of said, um, you're coming out this weekend? And I was like, no, I'm not coming out. I haven't got any money, you know. So I can't... And this is just a village pub in the in Alsager. Um, I'm not, I can't come home and got any money. Well, ask your mum for some money. She hasn't got any money. And there was this little, tiny, politely disguised moment of disconnect where I was like, your mum hasn't got any money. Right. And they didn't get it. 
yeah, they'd never yeah, yeah. see. And uh, lovely people, very well intentioned, great artists, great, really nice. But just there was that l- missing bit of context. The idea that there wasn't a lot of money at home that you could ask for. Right. Didn't. I mean, I got sent money. You know, I got sent £20 a week towards the end by my mum out of her. She had a part time job. My dad paid the mortgage and the bills and all that. And mum was sending me £20 a week to buy food. And I spent it on beer and records. Yeah, but you were at a time <laughs> when there was a grant. And there was yeah, yeah. so all my rent and everything else was covered. Yeah, so it was accessible, much more accessible for people from working class backgrounds. Yeah. Like, I went to university when there wasn't a grant. My mum had some assistance and, and she paid some. I mean, she was a social work, she was in social work management, but my dad was retired and there was no real yeah, money on his huge. side. So it's a single income of uh, three kids or whatever. Um, so she had some assistance from the state to pay the fees that shouldn't mm-hmm. be charged shouldn't in the exist. first place shouldn't fucking exist um, but the rest of it like I you know I definitely benefited from having a family there where there's some money and some can be a small amount mm. well that was enough exactly me. it could be enough like but that's what sometimes I think middle class people don't understand is that that, that having having a little bit of money available to them they often think oh I didn't have privilege but actually mm. that little bit of money is is a lot more than somebody else. Well, might and and um, we were right. You know, there's a, there's a great play. What's it called? Called Blackout. It's part of um, it's about, about a young offender, and it's a single voice piece. Part of you know the New Horizons. They used to do the National Theatre New Horizons. Right. It ran, I think, two thousand at least until two thousand and ten. Because I had all the books. Really loved it. Jack Thorne did some stuff, some writing for them. Lots of good people did writing for them. A piece called Blackout, which was developed in a workshop with young offenders, and there's a really telling line in it. Uh, where the guy verbatim it's all verbatim stuff and he says because you knew you were poor but you weren't poor poor and that's kind of identified with that never never went without dinner never went without a pair of shoes when I needed a pair of shoes right you know but also sometimes no there isn't we can't right no you can't we can't afford it right and my dad went and worked in Saudi Arabia for two years in the late 70s because if you work in refrigeration and you go and work in the Middle East, you make a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and they need refrigeration yeah, exactly. as well. Air yeah. conditioning in the main, because it works the same way as a fridge does. Right. Um, in case you don't know, <laughs> fridges don't make cold, they remove heat. Right, OK. So you have... That's why you've got the radiator on the back, because the gas circulates around the outside of the, the, um, the cupboard, and the gas absorbs heat. Yeah. Right, and I then did, the gas. I did, def- I did yeah. not. Know then the gas goes to the radiator on the back of the fridge, radiates the heat, gets pumped round again, absorbs the heat, goes to the radiator, radiates the heat. Right. So that's how refrigeration works. It doesn't make cold; it removes heat. That's a brilliant piece of education <laughs> that you've done for me. Which there. I learned from and my I dad. Learned... No, my dad said exactly the same. Well, that's it. I mean, and that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Right? There are different kinds of learning. Mm-hmm. There are different kinds of things that you can teach. You might pluck out from the narrative that you became interested in education when you were at FE College and you studied the miners. Uh, <laughs> that's that's that is a legitimate origin. But maybe it was you know your dad communicating that piece my, of information to dad, you when my, you were a kid. My dad know? was curious and discontent, and I'm curious and discontent yeah that's, right. that's essentially what it is right I'm, I get bored very quickly and I need something else to put in my head but when I put it in there it stays right and that's it and then I realised that I could A get attention <laughs> by doing that for other people and then I was good at it 
Right. I was fucking good at it. And, um, yeah, I, 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 and I, the reason I hate, and hate's a very strong word, but I think it's appropriate, the way that post-compulsory education in this country has gone and the way it's been manipulated by successive governments is because they stopped me being able to do something I fucking loved doing because I could not endure the conditions in that environment. In the classroom, beautiful. Loved it. And I was extremely... I was fucking good at it. Um... And I've and I've got cards and books and presents and I've got a little engraved hip flask that a student bought me with quotes from stuff I'd said. Oh, but I couldn't endure being in the classroom and feeling confident and free and powerful and useful. Uh, and not powerful in a kind of tyrannical way. Because I, I always used to do all my classes in a circle. King Arthur, why are we sitting in a circle? Because we're all equal. I really need to hear what you've got to say or else I don't know what to say to you. Totally. No point being in... Because teenagers... I used to think to myself, if I was a teenager and I had somebody doing this, would I have thought they were a wanker? And if I would, I wouldn't do it. Because, you know, you, you can't forget where you've come from. No, you know, regardless of what that journey's been, because it's made massive differences to you along the way. Yeah. And I was a teenage drama student, so I'm working with teenage drama students, and so you try and do the best job you can because you've got this idea that all I'm interested in is opening up what are sometimes quite closed ideas. Kind of what you're talking about is that an education system that doesn't really give you that kind of freedom to take you, those risks. If you get yourself to a place where you get good observation grades and you get decent results, they will leave you alone. Right. But you've got to get to that but place. But you've got to first. get to that place first. Yeah. And and if you're young and very conscious of how you're being judged, your journey to that place is much, much harder and you may never get there. Yeah. And I got there it took me it's like learning to drive. You know, you, you learn to drive, you pass your test and you know how to drive a car. You do your teacher training, you pass your diploma, you know how to teach. You really have no idea how to teach right. for at least two years, right. and probably longer. It took me five years before I could I could be confident calling myself any kind of decent. Yeah, I was all right, got by, but I was never happy with it. But then after ten years, I was flying, and I could go into any room pretty much with a group of students, and often from different from business, and I taught functional skills. English and they make you they go right well you have not got enough hours so you've got to go and do this subject with these people alright but I'm not going to do it like that you can give me a scheme of work and a lesson plan I will throw them away and I will do this <laughs> my way because right. I've been doing it for 10 years and I'm confident enough that I know how to do it right and if, and if it goes wrong you go I'll do it differently next time and it's getting to that place where you can fuck up like with anything ah, and you don't go oh everything I've ever done is shit you go, okay, now let's look at what I did right? and see where the things that went wrong went wrong and fix it. Right. Because you're confident enough in your own. And I was forced out of a, that, that whole reflective, glorious, beautiful process by um, monetarist, capitalist, whatever word you want to use, recent governments, who were only interested... <laughs> 
in uh, raw figures. You could work for for a year with somebody, and they and they they could have a family tragedy and leave the course without completing. I'll get pressure. Ring them up. Get them in. Do their work. You know. No. You know. They've just lost their brother. I'm not going to do that. Because, right. you know. Yeah, but oh, what's it going to look like on your retention figures? I don't care. I, but then I'm made to care because I'm going to go to a manager meeting and they're going to say, oh, performing arts, look at your retention. It's like, my job is not manipulating the unemployment figures, but you think it is. Right. <laughs> Right, right, right. What's yeah. employment to a certain extent got to do with education? Mm. Well, and that's again the problem: education <clears throat> only, only to create a workforce, right? Rather than to expand people's potential in their minds, so then they can do a job. Well, I mean, and if all, they want to, and even then, like the modern day education system preparing people to be workers is only even on its own basis makes sense if there's jobs at the end of it for yeah, people to go into you know you, people go to university now and they come out of university there's still not jobs for them yeah. they've, they've gone through all the hoops and it shouldn't be hoops no. it should be expanding their mind like you talk about yeah. that's why I went to university yeah. I was disappointed too um, in the end yeah. I loved it but I was disappointed well yeah in the end I, 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 I was disappointed it wasn't political enough that was all. right in the, well in the end I loved it or I made it my yeah, I made it for myself way, I made yeah. my own thing from it but I definitely was expecting to to find this hotbed of radicalism and, and, and ideas and thoughts. And in fact, it was like, oh, it's the same as every, as always. I've got to make that shit or it doesn't yeah. happen. Like, and that's not to say there weren't loads of amazing, political, uh, inspiring, amazing radical things. people I met, met at university. Yeah. I did find all those things, I think. Like, it just took a lot longer to find. And maybe that was unrealistic expectations. Maybe it's always been like that. Or maybe, maybe the quest is more important than the fulfilment. Yeah, the there's that too. <laughs> So I mean, it's. Are we filling up your? Yeah, no. Ship? Well, I think we're 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 around about time to 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 wrap up. But it's been a real pleasure no, uh, getting better acquainted with you today. And I I I yeah. I mean, I could I could genuinely record you for hours and hours and hours. Um, and I think I'm not you know, sure. I've, I've said this to you before, but I think you know you're a prime person to make your own podcast. Like if you if you had your own podcast going out, but I understand that the, that you are a, a, a vice principal of a, well, an adult education college. That's a lot. I, I'm of, I'm also uh, better. At re- I'm better at reacting to things than I am at uh, initiating things. Sure. Yeah. No. Sure. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> if if I had the time to take on another pod- podcast project at this moment <laughs> in time, I might take on like uh, coming coming to you every week and recording your <laughs> your ideas. No. No. I mean, I genuinely would. I mean. It, that's what I think the Radio Things. Four should be. If they're gonna, if Radio Four are gonna be uh, commissioning white, um, relatively privileged men, uh, then they should be commissioning. They should, they should be commissioning you, um, and have you talk. I mean, if we have to listen to people pontificate about their ideas, I'd much prefer it to be you well, um, than because we largely agree people. with each other. Well, <laughs> maybe it's that. Maybe it's not. Like often, it's. It's not really about agreement. What I find when I talk yeah. to you, it's it's that you're telling me stuff I haven't thought about, and then I have to go away and think about it. I might agree with it, I might not. Good, but it's well, new. please don't. It's new, <laughs> right? It's new, and uh, and that's a valuable thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, the last the last thing that I ask uh, everybody is, mm-hmm. do you have anything to plug? Um, I've got something coming out soon. Um, I've I did a book which some lucky lucky people may be aware of uh, yeah i have uh, which is uh, cop- which is basically the human league's album dare 
rewritten in the form of sonnets. Oh. So um, I kind of there's a website called Pop Sonnet, uh, which I highly recommend. Love to do with me, uh, and it, I, just, I thought what a fucking brilliant idea. So um, I stole a bit, a bit, but but the, whoever it is, uh, she or he who does Pop Sonnet, sort of chooses things rather in a scattershot kind of way. And I love pop. The one thing we haven't talked about is, is pop it's music, music, pop yeah, music and the, records. It's the big hole in this conversation. Um, and I think it's that you love music so much that we haven't managed to avoid it at all <laughs> because it's been peppered all the way through. Well, we've, we've done right. education, which is my other. The other thing is that really it's about being free to make. Well, I used to read The Enemy, and The Enemy used to be full of pretentious, pompous, wonderful, glorious, lovely people, and they would do these interviews and they would mention a record or talk about a band or an art movement or something like that and it was my way of finding these things out it was my gazetteer into the land of the peculiar which is right. which is what i loved the most so you know you mark almond there'd be something there and you you'd start going off and reading strange things in that direction right or julian cope would talk about esoteric philosophy and you're going blah, blah, blah. or or even like people would Trashy bands would talk about trashy stuff, and you'd chase down Jacqueline Susan or Valley of the Dolls or whatever it might right. be. Always interested, and musicians seem to be a way to find strange, interesting, diverting things. Right, right. Uh, and that was the other my other sort of. So my research—it's not research. I'm great at dignifying it with that term, but it was always like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's go and find it. And then the quest comes in because prior to the internet. If you wanted a record by a band you hadn't heard of, you had to save up, get your travel card, go up to Camden, go into Record and Tape Exchange, plough through racks and racks and racks and racks of stuff, trying to find this this album or that single or whatever. Oh, there used to be a brilliant shop called Psychotronic Video around the back in a cellar. And just that thing of going around the back of a building and down into a cellar that had wet stairs and finding this room full of, what the fuck is this stuff? That quest was exciting. Yeah. Why did I start this? You were going to tell us about your book. Oh, yes. So, pop music. Love pop music. I love trashy, shitty, awful pop music. And I like really high-end, clever shit like Luke Haynes and Johnny Mitchell. And, you know. Yeah. But it, it's soul, I think, in with a small s. That's the thing. You know, if it feels to me like that record could not have... That band, those people in that place at that time could not have done anything else but make that record, then I love that record. And that goes for things like... La Dolce Vita by Ryan Paris uh, and the first Velvet Underground album and, and lots of Doors records and The Wonder Stuff and Pet Shop Boys and pop music, particularly yeah. articulate, literary, clever pop music where it's a beautiful tune, it's really catchy but it's also kind of smart-arsed underneath it which is right. why Elvis Costello and Luke Haynes are particularly right. favourites of mine. Um, and that is also something that some the, the, the Human League do and the Human League is the is the band that you have well, made into sonnets on well, their the, album. People don't take the Human League seriously. I do. Not many. But I know people. what you mean. No, a lot yeah. of people don't. So people go, "Don't you want me?" Blah blah blah. It's like a trashy chuck away pop music. Well, that in itself is a brilliant piece it's of a, work. But anyway, it's a, it's a psychodrama. We're well, not psychodrama. It's a drama in two verses. Yeah. it's a whole story right. of a massive relate. It's a novel in two verses. Yeah, it's beautiful. Exactly. So, I thought what I'm going to do is I'm going to give the level of dignity. And and consideration that sonnets receive, uh, and apply that to what people see as throwaway pop music. So I did a cover version of the whole album, including the instrumental, uh, and I did a cover that looks exactly like the cover of the album cover, 
with my face on it instead of Phil Oakey's. I, I, I found the font, because the details are important, you've got to make it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I found the font that's on the cover of the album, I matched the colours, everything. So the cover of my book is instantly recognisable as the cover of there. And then all ten tracks on the album are rewritten uh, in the form of a sonnet. So it's the, sometimes it's the theme of the lyric, sometimes there's stolen lyrics dropped in, but... And the more you know, there's a sample. I don't know. Yeah. If you should, stolen is a complicated word. Okay, well, okay, well, <laughs> but, okay. Quotes, yeah, Ref, exactly. direct, direct referencing, um, and then obviously with Get Carter, which is an instrumental. I had to think of something else, but Get Carter's a cover of the theme from the film. Yeah. So I've written the plot of Get Carter in the form of a sonnet. So the book, anyway. So that's my little book, and it's A six. Yeah. So you can buy it at a gig and it slips in the arse pocket of your jeans. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I have done that. And it's nice and convenient. So, But it has to be, to do, for this to work, it has to be stuff that people don't really take seriously. So you can't do an Elvis Costello sonnet book because people already take Elvis no, Costello's right, lyrics right, right, seriously. Right, right. You can't do a Joni Mitchell sonnet yeah, book because yeah. people take that stuff. Carol King, you can't do. Yeah. Luke Haynes, you can't do. But my next one is ABBA. Uh, because I love, I absolutely love ABBA, and I, that's what I was peculiar at school. Because I was at school, well, I left school in '89, and I I liked Human League and ABBA, and everyone else, not everyone else, but most people like Yaz or whatever was in the charts. Well, both the Human um, League and ABBA are, are superior to Yaz. I, I would agree. I, I, I think the only way is I up can, is a great, great pop song. I'm, sure, I'm not knocking, and so's Ride on Time, another one from that from that year. I am not rock, knocking those individual songs. Mm. I'm just saying body yeah. of work. Yes, and 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 post post see the 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 great wars of the eighties pop wise, eighty six eighty seven is where it dies, when Stockaken and Waterman stop making peculiar weird little gay club pop soul records, and it becomes much more anodyne. Right. But prior to that, Hazel Dean is fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> There's an amazing song so, called "Who's Leaving Who," which is a Stockaken and Waterman pr- production. An astonishing lyric. It's Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan that fuck everything up. Prior to that, they were working with Divine. You know, it's there's really, really good club music. I agree. And, I, and if, if I have you back again, we should definitely just talk pop music, just music. for an hour, because I, I, I can do that for, yeah. for sure. But, so, anyway, so I make this so book. Where, so, the next yeah, one is ABBA. They... ABBA. Right. So, but the, and so, it's 15 ABBA songs uh, rewritten in the form of sonnets, exploring the, the themes of the lyrics and sometimes sampling lifting whatever word you want to hear right. lines from the songs hopefully with a with a touch of wit and a, and a dash of sophistication and then this time round I've asked my friend Ian who is a Shakespeare scholar to edit edit it for me he'll get credit on the book as an editor to make sure that they're not trochaic that they're actually iambic and to well, and to okay. make sure that they're proper uh, yeah, because you, you, you're someone who really likes metre. We probably should have talked about mm. metre sometime as well, but we haven't got we haven't really got no, time no. because for the patience of those listeners. Yes, uh, we've been going for and we both need nearly to get two home. hours. Well, no, quite yeah, an hour and a half, <laughs> an hour and a half. We've been going. So, um, so on that note, yeah, I mean, so how can they find those books and stuff like that? How can uh, they find what you, you do? Ask me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, usually I've got a pocket full of, of Defy as is the version of Dare if I'm out about if I'm doing a gig particularly um, I'm remarkably unambitious about these things I'm sure I could so they um, can only find it if, if they come to if a they, gig if they, if they encounter me but the Utter is running in Luton the next one is the 2nd of June oh you must come this is going to be so good ok I'll try and, uh, my friend, I'll try and get my friend I've got a guy who I was at who, Luton 6th form was an astonishing place 
it was then anyway, I'm sure it is now. He works for, he works in radio, but he had access to the transcripts of the Hillsborough Inquests. Jesus. So he's written a cycle of poems, a whole 40-minute cycle of poems, verbatim drawn from the transcripts of the inquests. Sounds heavy, uh, but also probably very good. And he's working on it with a theatre company as a presentation up in Liverpool. But the debut of this collection, which is to be published, Brian Patton is a fan. He's got endorsements from Brian Patton. Uh, He's going to be at my little gig in Luton on the 2nd of June. Right, and how can people find that? That's going to be at the Hat Factory in Luton, back basement. So if you go to What's On Luton Culture, you will find that. Look in the Hat Factory thing. It's called Utter Lutonia, and it will be David Kane as the as the second half. But I've got all sorts of other people off the off the sort of London poetry circuit types names right. you might have heard. So I'll try and get this to come out the week before that. Yeah, uh, which is a, probably a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, week. well that's yeah, that's that's it's, it's three it's weeks away. Three anyway. weeks makes it more likely to yeah. come out in time. Yeah, yeah. excellent. So that's going to be that's the f- and uh, it's the first time also. My gig's been very small, and it's always been like in the basement of a cafe. And Luton Culture have sort of gone, ah, something good is happening. And they've kind of invited me in. So I'm trying working with the... Instead of being like a lone wolf, I'm trying working with the... Uh, with the as close to the establishment as we get. So, yeah, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Um, bye-bye. <laughs> Bye, everyone. See ya. Cheers. If you'd like to donate to Getting Better Acquainted, go to www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk, which has a button on it where you can sign up to donate via PayPal. If you listened to today's episode and you thought, what I'd like is to hear Dave talking for around about an hour, then go over to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast and listen to the most recent episode, which is me doing my solo show about my relationship with being a man, which is called What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. To find out more about that show and to donate towards helping me continue making that, go to www.com mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk or go over to the Stand Up Tragedy website which is www.standuptragedy.co.uk The Stand Up Tragedy website has just had a revamp so it looks bright and sparkling and new and hopefully much more accessible. This year Stand Up Tragedy aren't doing any of our normal variety nights But we are still putting on Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we showcase performers doing double bills of their full-length shows. We've booked in two of those at the Dog Star in Brixton on the 13th and 14th of July where four of our favourite performers will be previewing the tragic shows that they're taking to the Edinburgh Festival this year. You can find Getting Better Acquainted and any of my other podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher and anywhere else that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. All the things I do are on Facebook so you can find them and like them or friend them on Facebook. Getting Better Acquainted is on Twitter at GBA Podcast. Stand Up Tragedy is on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. If you're a regular listener to Getting Better Acquainted, then you may have heard the name Matt Hill pop up quite a lot of times in the years since the show's been going. 
He's a really old friend of mine, and he's a reason that a lot of people who've been guests on the show have known me. So when I've asked them, how do you know me? They've often said, through Matt Hill. And yet, Matt, in all the years of me doing this show, has always said he'd rather not do the show, rather not sit down with me and do a conversation. Recently, Matt finally agreed to come on Getting Better Acquainted, but he had a requirement before he would come on, and that is for Spark True Storytelling to meet our target in the fundraising we are doing to raise money for Refuge Aid, which is a charity working with refugees. Now, you can donate to that fundraiser over on www.stories.com co.uk which is sparks website if you've ever wanted to get better acquainted with matt hill and he is a podcaster of some renown but at the same time he's very rarely in front of the microphone then support that very very worthy cause and if you don't know who matt hill is you should still donate some money because refugees are people the same as us and they need our support our governments certainly aren't giving that support so we need to do what we can to help them ourselves.